The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my amazing co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? Uh, they're well, Brandon. I was just thinking as you were talking, he, he could just record that because you do it exactly the same every time. And then today you didn't. I wasn't lovely. <laughs> I was amazing. <laughs> I think when you get into a groove sometimes, it's hard to break the, it's almost like a habit I've developed, I guess. Maybe I should, yeah, throw it to the side for one episode and see what happens. Or just record it the same every time and then we can go from there. <laughs> So how am I doing? I am doing a lot better today than yesterday. Why is that? I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's this diet analyzing thing called Zoe. And it's started by a professor at King's College London. And he did a lot of gut biome research and realized that it's massively different and makes a huge impact on how many calories we consume, how our bodies handle sugar and how our bodies handle fat. And then turned it into a consumer product. So you can pay upwards of 300 pounds. Then you wear a blood sensor. You take blood out of your finger on the test day. My finger is like horribly bruised and really hurts. You had to eat these horrible... It's funny, like I read online that the muffins were horrible and they were okay. I could eat them. I could eat them within the 15 minutes. But the first three... Like had my blood sugar absolutely skyrocket and then absolutely plummet. I felt awful. The going up part felt kind of energizing, but I was shaky. I couldn't think. I was like underwater. I had thought I wasn't actually that sensitive to sugar, but I guess I was wrong. I am definitely sensitive to sugar. So I had to eat two sets of muffins, take a blood test, fill up this card with all of my blood, and that will test how much fat is left in my blood afterwards. Shipped it all away. And now I'll find out what I should eat and what's particular for me. So why go through this arduous process? Yeah, I didn't actually realize it was going to be such a thing. I was like, oh, it's kind of curious. You know, we're at the NHS. We don't get a lot of tests. We don't really scan our bodies. We know nothing about our bodies (laughs) unless we have something wrong with us. And so I was like, oh, yeah, curious. Let's see. But yesterday was a bit more than I was expecting. And I suspect that I should eat more fresh food, eat fewer carbs probably a bit less meat, (laughs) but specific to my body to do these things. I am slightly concerned. I don't think I have any sort of disordered eating, but I feel like I may end up with some level of disordered eating after this little journey. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, we've got a great topic today and a classic clickbait title, which is what are the top five traits of a successful COO? We've got Charlene Chen joining us. She's the former CEO of Lantum and Aza Finance and is now the co-founder of the Operations Nation. And she'll be joining us in a few minutes. Just before we get to that, I think this topic is quite interesting in terms of the traits part of it. What are the traits of Bethany that really make your CEO profession really come alive? Well, definitely I am glue between the functions kind of a person. I did that in 
all roles. Like, I don't know if that's building personal relationships or just really understanding how systems work or a little bit of both, but how you get all of the desperate people together and working and all of their systems connected is a trait that I have. I don't know. Is that a trait? Is that a skill? Is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? But I suppose there's a a natural trait involved, isn't there, to bring different groups together, bring different stakeholders together. And their systems and their numbers (laughs) and the interrelatedness of them all. So I would say, I think historically, actually in performance reviews as well, I've been characterized numerous times as unflappable. Essentially, it's being remarkably or extraordinarily calm within chaotic circumstances. And I think generally this is true, and it's quite a valuable skill in scale-ups when there's confusion, there's chaos, there's things that are happening where people are discombobulated for whatever reason, whether it's individuals or teams or even the wider organization in this case. And I think just being extraordinarily, in my view at least, present, focused, and on target for what needs to be done is a default trait that I have that serves me well in the CEO capacity. And yes, so there you go. Unflappable is my shtick. If we're listing more than one trait, another one that I have, and I guess it's kind of like traits I have, rather they're traits that are good for the role, but let's just assume that because I've done the role, they're also good for the role. (laughs) Natural correlation here. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is one that I have been told I am good at is seeing what matters and explaining that in simple terms and providing a vision for the future state. So I can basically rally people around where we're going and tell them the very simplest things that need to get done. So like order out of chaos and simplicity out of complexity. I think that's a fantastic trait for a CEO professional because oftentimes we end up getting bogged down in all sorts of complexities and the organization can only handle real clarity around the subject matter, whatever it is. You can crystallize on the single thing that's most important and also crystallize around here are the three recommendations or three actions that make tremendous sense and here's why. So that's a wonderful trait for sure. And do you have any others? I've been called a quick decision maker. And in my view, I don't make quick decisions. What I'm very good at is understanding the business in totality in terms of the product, the market opportunity, our engines that support or kind of go to markets and the the organization itself. And this ability to connect dots that others can't, I think has always been a talent that I've had. And whether it's, you know, vague information, abstract information, being able to synthesize all that into a decision, I'm quite good at doing that and doing it fast. And people, I think, interpret it sometimes as me making quick decisions. But in fact, it's, in my view at least, it's making decisions based on the information that we have. And I've pulled together my thought process as to what makes the most sense. And here's the call that I think needs to be made. So I think when it comes to this question of being able to make decisions, I think I'm very good at doing that. And generally speaking, I think for the most part, 80-20 wise, I tend to be mostly on target. That's an interesting one. I think it's very interconnected with both the glue and seeing how everything fits together and understanding what's next. So it's almost like different words for what I was describing. But one of the things I do in my moments of self-reflection, of which there are many, and my moments of self-doubt, of which there are many, is I make quick decisions. I really don't like not making a decision. Like I don't necessarily believe in everything in Myers-Briggs, but what I find really helpful is the idea of judging versus perceiving. So people who feel better when the decision is made and 
like a deadline versus the people who feel hemmed in and the world is over when a decision is made, which tends to be every CEO I have ever worked with, (laughs) which is maybe like a CEO founder thing, whereas I am super, let's make a decision. Okay, now I can breathe. I'm also impatient and I have a bias towards action. And so I do feel like I sometimes rush decisions. And I only in retrospect realize I have rushed decisions. I'm very bad in the moment because I just like, it's my comfort zone. And I have not reached that moment of ability to be in the decision-making comfort zone and go, oh, no, no, no. Let me take a step back and just not make a decision because maybe that's the right decision. Yeah, right. It's such a weird balance, isn't it? Because classically, when you read articles on LinkedIn or whatever, it's always around indecision is the problem. (laughs) So we have a bit of like maybe the opposite problem in some ways, which is too quickly drawing inferences and conclusions and trying to drive things forward. Because you're right in one way, which is CEO professionals really are all about pace and movement. and, And in doing so, maybe we kind of get ahead of ourselves. I read the articles where it's like indecision is the problem. But then I also read the articles that are like, rush decisions, bad decisions are the problem and you need to give your team space. So it's after I read those articles that I like self-flagellate for a while and think, how can I be a perfect person in the future (laughs) by changing this behavior of mine? So the way that I look at it always is like the actual outcomes at the end of the day, which is like, was my call the right call? Sometimes you don't know for a little while, but I think just letting things play out and as we all do in scale-ups, it goes down a pathway then you're like, okay, something needs to be changed here. So it's a bit of a a decision-making continuum, as it were, as opposed to like a fiat yes or no on something that's going to last forever. That's true. Um, just as a side note, that's completely cultural and particularly like a Anglophone thing. Have you ever read The Culture Map? It's absolutely fascinating. And there's like, I don't know, eight or nine different scales of things to talk about. And one of them is around decision-making and whether decisions are considered easy to make and easy to reverse or hard to make and irreversible cultures sit on that. And we are in the culture of that. In Germany, all decisions are considered irreversible. So they are made very slowly and methodically and with good decision-making, and then it's done versus the North American British connection, which is like pretty much everything is reversible or is a small decision on a path. This thing comes up in companies sometimes where I kind of go back to this axiom of this isn't life or death. This is not like a surgery or war or something like that. You know, there is always a tomorrow. Whatever's happened today, let's put it behind us. Another day's in front of us and nobody's going to die. So I feel like this mentality is, I think, applies to this too, which is decisions are made. And, you know, if we make wrong decisions, we're going off in a different direction at some point. Ultimately, we just need to find that out as soon as we can. Which completely logically makes sense, but I am always amazed at myself and pretty much everyone, and maybe let's just say humanity's capability of creating purpose and value and everything that we do. I think we are so desperate to have purpose in the world that we can make everything matter. It's like our default function, which is why suddenly it our bodies feel that way. Emotionally, we feel that way about not life and death situations. And I find it in some ways quite reassuring because it does drive us on and we don't need to 
hunt for deep purpose in life because we just create it out of where we live and how we interact with other people. That is probably the truest thing I've ever heard on this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you a thousand percent on, the, on that point. I think we can, we can create our own realities of anything in terms of importance, I think. With that, why don't we move on to our chat with Charlene Chen and let's do that. I am delighted to welcome Charlene Chen to the operations room. Charlene is the co-founder of Ops Nation. Actually, I should probably say it's Operations Nation, isn't it? That's how you're going to find it online. Operations Nation is a fantastic community for anybody in the ops field. If you don't know about it yet, I highly suggest having a look at it. And it's international, so it's not just for UK or US people. Welcome, Charlene. Thanks so much. Normally, we get started with a first question, but part of the reason why we have you on today, not just to talk about Operations Nation, but also to talk about the event that Ops Nation is putting on in the next couple of weeks called the International Ops Fest. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. We are so incredibly excited. Basically, we've been running an annual conference the past two years and Everyone adapted because it was COVID, but this is the first time we're doing not only a in-person conference in London, but we decided like, why don't we just celebrate this kind of like emergence coming out of the pandemic and bring together not just the operations nation community, but unite operations communities all over the globe. So we're partnering with other ops communities, like my startup gig is in Australia, Operators Guild is mainly in the U.S., San Francisco base. So like from Sydney to San Francisco and everywhere in between, including in Nairobi and Lagos. So it's like we're talking four continents wide. We want to just bring together as many startup ops professionals as possible. So some of that gathering is going to happen online. So we've got like a fireside chat with Lila Ibrahim, who's the COO of Google DeepMind, Jeff Shapansky, who's a serial COO, now heading up Reframe Tech. So it's just going to be this amazing, massive gathering. Like I like to think of it as like the Guinness Book of World Records, like biggest gathering of startup ops professionals globally. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I don't think one exists. Right. Yeah, there you go. Our listeners will be absolutely thrilled to know that they can meet Bethany and myself live and in person, <laughs> as we'll be moderating uh, to the events in this case. And so if our listeners want to register, sign up, find out more, where should they go? Our website is operationsnation.com. And you just click on events and you'll see all the information, all the things that are going on globally. So whether that's the events that I mentioned with Lila and Jeff, which is also going to include networking. It's going to include all the meetups that are happening in New York City, in London, Berlin, Sydney, um, and then also the conference where we're so excited to have y'all moderate. I don't know if people re realize this, but moderating is such a gift. So we're really thrilled to have both of y'all moderating our sessions at the London-based conference Wednesday, October 18th. Oh, that's probably an important thing to mention. It's running October 16th through 20th. And it's a bit cheeky because October is the only month in the year that starts with O. So think of it as an operations month of October. I had not clicked. So did you actually purposely choose October because it's operations October? Yes, because we're just that cheesy. 
And for anybody who hasn't caught the details, it'll be listed in the episode notes. So just click in there to get more information. Thanks so much, Charlene. So what we're talking about today is basically a continuation of our conversation with Divinia, where we talked about what is a COO. And today we're talking about what makes up a COO. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it is leaders of two COO ops communities that have these broad perspectives on the role. So let's just get started. What are the traits that all COOs have? So I think the first one, we've got to highlight the generalist nature. You really have to have a breadth of knowledge as a COO. And that's difficult because especially as the company grows, you're going to need to hire people that are more specialists in the areas that you are responsible for and overseeing. I call us the nickname of like, we're Jacks and Jills of all trades. We're Swiss army knives. So I'd say the COO role isn't a great fit if you really thrive in being a subject matter expert, going really deep in one topic or one field or one function. You need to be the kind of person who likes being cut across a lot of different areas. I guess it's a good role for the easily bored. I like to joke that maybe a less kind way of saying like, if you're ADB, it's kind of good to be a COO because your attention is constantly drawn in a million directions. And a love of learning and a love of problem solving. Actually, problem solving explicitly isn't one of the traits that you have down. You know, it's so funny. I actually almost put down problem solving. So I think it's embedded in the second trait which I said is like hourglass shaped. And it just kind of has this idea of like, you need to be able to zoom out and think about big strategy, but you also need to be able to zoom in as an ops leader and like look at discrete concrete systems and processes. So I think actually, Bethany, you're right. And that I think is what's really challenging, but also what differentiates great COOs from sort of okay, mediocre COOs, is the ability to solve problems at both a macro big picture. Where is this company going? What are the key objectives that are going to get us there? But also like something not so fun, but important is like, how do I get this ISO certification at the least cost and the least impact, you know, to the rest of the business? Or you find a minute customer issue that seems small in isolation, but could really blow up or is exemplary of like a much bigger one. So I do actually think that there is a challenge of problem solving the macro, I guess call it the medio and micro level. Just quickly going back to the generalist, how would you uh, help the operations professional where they've really come from a consulting background and a real kind of operations mantra, and that's how they think, but they really haven't mastered any particular functions within an organization ever in their careers, but they're very much angling to become a CEO in this case, and contrasting that versus a Bethany or a Brandon where previously to becoming a CEO, I was not an operations person at all. What I was was a product person. I was a commercial person, and then I was a CEO. So very much I've come from a functional mastery perspective to the CEO role without actually going through the more straight-up operational side, I guess, in terms of my career trajectory a little bit. But I think for that consulting person or that ex-McKinsey consultant that has done that for a living, how do they become a good generalist in a business organization? What I've noticed from the consultants who have become ops leaders 
is we tend to approach things from more framework perspective. So I think if we don't know a space, so we're coming into a function that we haven't managed before or a new industry, I find that we tend to take a framework. So we love two by two quadrants and, you know, we love to use prioritization frameworks, love 80-20 rules. So I see that the consultant types tend to take more framework and that's how our brains are trained. So, you know, I think that helps us navigate less familiar spaces. So that's kind of top down. I love seeing kind of more grassroots ops professionals who I think do a lot more like trial and error. So I think when there isn't context for a framework or a lot of structure for navigating an unknown space, which I think is a lot of ops leadership navigating unknown, (laughs) uncharted territories, then it's really like, well, let me experiment. What do I do? What do I know? And then sort of like building upon that. It's more like Lego. So it's like, okay, here's a few blocks. Let me experiment. Okay. I know that this works. And so just building upon that. But I think honestly, the, the trait that unites all of us, regardless of the career path, is the problem solving that Bethany brought up, right? If you have an intellectual curiosity <laughs> to use a framework like the five whys, we've actually at Operations Nation developed what we believe are the essential core competencies of a COO. And so I guess the framework I would use, we love frameworks, to help anyone who's coming like you, Brandon, you know, from one of the functions, but then trying to know what you can cover. We use actually a human body to talk through that. So strong head is like ability to do strategic planning, organizational performance and analytics, or design. And then we say like strong arms and legs is ability to manage upwards to your CEO and founder laterally to other exec team members or C-suite downwards to your direct reports, whether they're individual contributors or managers as well. So that's been helpful to me to describe like, these are the general areas that you need to cover, which doesn't take a function approach. I think it's just helpful to know, look, as a COO, I'm never going to color in the entire matrix. I'm not going to be an expert in every single function figure out which tools in your Swiss army knife are going to be sharpest. Knowing which tools to use when is actually what we're talking about. And that's what's essential for a generalist is know when to dive in and know when to step back and let the specialist lead. Trait number two, the hourglass shape, the, the zoom in, the zoom out. I think to your point, this is a critical trait for a CEO professional to be very, very good at because you deal with incoming fire of all sorts of forms and flavors, both from that strategic level down to the tactical. Is there ways in which you can help a person develop that muscle or that skill, the ability to zoom in and zoom out, do you think? Oh, that's a great one. I think with the macro, so the zooming out, I do think frameworks can be taught because consultants are taught that framework. It's not like we're born being able to do two by two matrices, matrices, right? We learn that framework and then we adapt it and we apply it and we overuse it, but we love it. It's really hard because actually in strategic planning, there in that itself, which we label as macro, there's also a minute analysis. So honestly, I think it goes back to like developing analytical skills, right? And that art, I know I harp, I mentioned it 
earlier, but it's just, it's just different forms of questions. So it's the ability to ask a good big question about a big space, but also asking a good question about a small space. So I think it really goes back to how do you train yourself to think about problems, to ask the right questions, and also knowing when to ask others and to know what you don't know. And then I think the skill that needs to be developed is actually how to sort through large data sets. So that's one thing I would say. I'm an ENFP for any Myers-Briggs fans out there. So I tend to do well with relationships, motivating and rallying people around projects, kicking off new things, but I'm not a great finisher. I'm not super great at analytics. So I think actually the secondary thing to do is have enough self-awareness to know the things that you should do as the COO or ops leader, and then knowing when to actually pull in a colleague or a peer to compliment you. So I think the hardest thing as you develop in your ops career is knowing when you should do it and when you should do it with someone and when you should delegate it to someone else and not do it, but but be in touch. So I think that's actually the art form. So I have a quick question on the hourglass. Brandon, I'd like to hear your Myers-Briggs as, as well. I'm a INTJ. So we have the I in common. Through other personality profiles, I've been taught that I'm an introvert who has learned to be an extrovert. And I am a big picture person who has learned to do detail to the point that members of my team were shocked that I was an N. They're like, but you catch every single detail error. And doesn't your brain work that way? And I'm like, no, it really doesn't. But I've trained myself. So we're all naturally at the top of the funnel and we've learned how to get ourselves to the bottom of the funnel. And maybe Charlene, that's what you're picking up are people I find, and this might be totally biased and wrong, and I'm about to insult like half the population. I find that it's a lot harder for people who start in the detail to extract up to the big picture to begin with. This has been super interesting. For the first time, we actually asked the entire COO course cohort to fill out the Myers-Briggs. So this is not a promotional plug, but I do love Crystal Nose as a way to, you know, at least the free survey allows any team members to like fill out what is essentially Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, maybe five strengths. So it's an amalgamation of personality tests. I was a comp sci major, but also a psychology major. We were shocked. The cohort showed up on all areas of the disc wheel. We had reds, oranges, greens, and blues slash purple. So there was no oh, all these ops people, which I had thought would be greens, which are generally the kind of more supportive. Sorry, I switched from Myers-Briggs to disc wheel. Are you a green? Because I'm a red-blue. So I'm like, of course, everybody's going to be a red-blue. Who'd be a green? You can get anything done as a green. So I think it's our own personal biases coming in. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a red-blue as well, by the way. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so I'm like a clear orange. So like I can take charge like a red could, but I'm super consensus builder and team player. So I'm less likely to move quickly than a red. Great ops leaders come in all shapes and sizes, all colors of the disc wheel, all parts of that. I think that's a perfect transition to the third trait. I didn't know what the adjective form of glue was. So I just said gluey. I think ops leaders and COOs are the connective tissue of a company. We fill in the gaps 
where they exist and that no one else, quite frankly, no one else is going to step up to do. We're nudging, you know, bringing the right people into the room, right? Who wouldn't take the initiative to meet. One of the things we haven't spoken about yet is like the breakdown that happens between teams as your company scales. One of the classic things to break is the communication between teams, which effectively become silos, right? It's how you do what you do and kind of enable and create environments, whether that's through the meetings that I mentioned, or it's what you say at an all hands meeting, or it's all about the communication. Most of the scaling issues I think happen not because people are incompetent, but because they're failing to communicate. And there's nobody's job usually, unless it's external communications, to be the chief communications officer. So effectively, the COO, in the absence of someone whose job is to do internal comms, you are the chief comms officer. And so when people aren't, the right people aren't talking to each other or the right people are talking to each other, but not being very effective at it, we're kind of coming in to be like company therapists, like, hey, let's get together. Let's have a family meeting (laughs) because you're not talking to each other. Which actually I think is interesting. So we had an internal comms person at Peak and it was the best thing ever. I was like, oh, it's such a luxury. How could we do this? How could we? And then it was like, oh my God, I loved it. But internal comms, I think is for the whole company. Whereas that person who's a connective tissue in the glue is a bit of therapist, a bit of being willing to have those conversations. Like you two clearly have a problem. You're sparring in every meeting it's not working, what's going on. And then the other part is knitting together. And I think that comes into the hourglass you were talking about, the ability to see the big and the small at the same time. So you're like, look, this is how your metrics affect each other. This is why it matters. This is why your systems aren't working. This is where the friction is. How do we remove it? Which again, is part of the glue rather than the internal comms person who just deals with making sure everybody knows what we mean when we say green. You're absolutely right. I think one point to really drive home that it's one of the things that I did not know, like I wish I had known when I first became a COO, is that even if people don't directly report to you or into you, you are still somehow responsible and accountable for their performance. So that's the diagonal relationship that, quite frankly, I don't think other C levels have, right? CFO, finance. CTO, it's tech. But when you're a COO, it's a 360 umbrella purview. So that's why we have to be, actually, it's our job to be that connective tissue diagonally to teams that don't report into us because actually their failure to produce and be successful is actually becomes our failure. But it's really hard to measure that success. It's what, you know, what Brandon was saying. It's like, How do you articulate? And I think this is something I see in our community. We as ops leaders really struggle. We don't know how to articulate in an OKR format. What were we supposed to say that we curated 15 conversations this quarter that wouldn't have happened without us? So I think one of the fundamental issues we have when to communicate our value to a business or a value to our CEOs is because we can't quantify 
glueiness. Yeah. And actually, I think, at least from my experience, has been everybody else sees my value is quantifying it to myself that's the challenge. And so part of what I did was just go and ask everybody. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, now I can understand what would happen if I'm not here. That's the true success factor, I will say, is when you go on leave, if you take leave, by the way, everyone should take leave. So ops listeners, take that leave. You will be appreciated in your absence because if something hits the fan, they know that you basically stuff runs better when you're around. You just don't shout about it, which is the fourth point about humility. We're not saying, Hey, look at me. I'm awesome. Look at what I've done. We are just ticking a lot long in the background, making sure that, you know, buses run on time, that everybody who needs to be on the bus go, you know, Like we keep the lights on, we keep the ship sailing, we keep the trains on track, but we don't shout about it. So when we go on leave and stuff starts going off the track, right people don't get on the bus, buses and trains run late, then they they finally realize, oh, okay, (laughs) I see the value. And I absolutely agree with Bethany and yourself. I feel like that is so true. I think when you actually talk to people about the impact that you're having on the organization, they can very readily tell you back the reasons why or what the value is in that case. And it's not a quantitative number as it is really a qualitative assessment in that case, but it'd be quite powerful to do the rounds like that and, and to ask the individuals how they feel about the value that you're providing in that case. So I think you created a good segue into your next point, number four here, which is humility or being humble. I say humility is, I think it's a trait going back to our nature versus nurture humble people are generally attracted into ops roles because they have been traditionally support, back office. It's the functions that are behind the curtains, that are behind the scenes. And we're enablers and supporters, and we help lift up and boost up other people. And I would challenge this one because I would like to see ops leaders be a little bit less humble. I would love to see us actually talking about what we do at work and actually articulating and quantifying, if possible, what it is that we do. Because quite frankly, I think we still live in a world where we have to defend our value. Can you somehow guide somebody on a path to humbleness? Because, you know, if I think back on myself earlier in my career, I was definitely not a humble person in a lot of respects. And the ego was definitely there and played out in various ways that were probably not to my advantage, ultimately, to be honest, and probably caught me out several times. And I had to kind of like learn over time to not learn to be humble, but just like to recognize my limitations, my weaknesses, and the fact that I'm serving a greater good beyond myself. And I think as I get older, uh, that becomes more and more potent, I think, within me. But it's taken age and some level of misery to get here. <laughs> So I'm just wondering for the younger Brandon of 25, is there something that we could say to him to somehow put him on a path to get there earlier, do you think? Oh, that's a great, great question. And I think we're just seeing this recurring theme of what can be taught just through experience. And I do think life happening softens all of our egos and definitely the failures that we will inevitably face, right? I think being a startup COO is singularly the hardest eight years I've had in my almost 20-year career. I think what is helpful is maybe just, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I think with people who are high ego, 
I tend to think that life kind of has to happen to them. But I think the thing I would want to say, you know, like you have to fail when you're kicked off your pedestal and you fall on your face. That's the learning that edges your ego. But maybe you fight ego with ego. So maybe the thing is to say, how can actually being humble and listening to others and letting others lead or shine? Maybe you you reverse engineer that. How can that actually help you be perceived as like a better team player? We're rapidly running out of time, but I'm also aware we haven't gotten to the fifth yet. So can we get the fifth? Yes. Let's quickly do the fifth one, which is resourcefulness. And then it's actually a perfect tee up because we're going to be talking about resourcefulness with y'all at the International Ops Fest conference. So I'll keep it brief. I think... COOs and ops leaders have to be. And if you're not, you become resourceful because we often have to do a lot for the company with less human capital and less financial resources. I think time and time again, I think a few people would dispute companies naturally allocate way more headcount and budget to revenue generating functions. And I will say, we touched on this, it's not to say that ops leaders and COOs don't also cover commercial and revenue generating functions. But generally, there are you will probably be managing multiple functions that are not revenue generating. So we get less headcount, we get less money, we don't get as much tech time to do internal tech systems. So we are just forced to do a lot more with less. So I think this is a trait that makes us particularly resilient for times like this when it's a down market. So I think you know, I like to joke there's there's wartime and peacetime COOs, but actually it's always wartime. So when the pandemic happened, we kind of all were just like shrug, like we're used to dealing with less and like dealing with crisis and just making do. So I actually think the most resilient C-level leaders in the pandemic, and I think now are COOs because this is what we're used to. So We've covered so much today. If people can only remember one thing from the conversation, what is it? I would just love all ops leaders who are listening to this, whether you're a COO already or on your path to becoming one, is just the most important thing you can do is just know thyself. Maybe you are destined to be a COO and that's a path that will support you as a community. But I think the key is really knowing yourself, knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, and just being comfortable with that. Some of the stuff is going to, you're going to be able to learn and adapt to. And then some of the stuff is just never going to come. And that's okay. Like you are uniquely made to do what only you can do. And I think it doesn't matter if, if you leave the ops profession and do something else, go into product, just do what you love, do what you're good at, what you're passionate about, hopefully what the world needs, and hopefully get paid for it. Love it. So thank you, Charlene Chen, for joining us on the Operations Room. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And perhaps we will see you at the OpsFest conference on October 18th. 